I'm arrogant of what I know. And like, like everybody else, you know, the, that they're all screwed up, but I had it all together. I was broken. <sighs> was also overwhelmed with gratitude. Because do you realize how patient and forgiving God has been to me? How much grace he has offered me, because, and I don't deserve it. I don't. Oh, I'm full of so much gratitude. I have, I have so far to go, but wow, God has brought me so far. And so, Lord, I say thank you. Thank you. You know, we're in a series going through Acts, and um, this song that you just heard is kind of a great response to what was happening in Acts 15. I have been praying for this message that God would... This has been a tough one. I'll be honest. This has been an anxious message for me. I've been praying that God, in some of us, would reveal the pride that we have in our heart. Maybe some of the judgmental attitudes that we have towards people who are different than us. I've been praying that, um, that we would respond to the grace that we have received from our Lord by offering that grace to others. That's been my, my prayer. As I've also, I've been praying for those of you in here and who are listening, you know, online at some time, those of you who feel judged. Maybe you feel like a church has, has caused you not even to be sure that God exists. I pray that today you experience God's overwhelming love and desire for you. That's what I pray. Now, today's passage, it relates deeply to a personal story of mine, and I wanted to share that with you. You know, in 2003, and I just realized I don't have the clicker, so you guys, I'll just tell you when, and it's fine. Um, in 2003, another pastor and I, we, uh, we both left our jobs and left our, everything that we were doing, and we teamed up to start a brand new church in Lakeland, Florida, in a high school there. And uh, from a numbers point of view, we were incredibly successful. You know, we had lots of people coming, lots of people finding life in Jesus. We were baptizing so many people that our denomination highlighted us in their literature as this is a successful church plant. About four years into that, uh, we were contacted by the school board, and they, were, they wanted to let us know that they changed the, the rules a bit and that we were no longer going to be allowed to meet in the school, which is a tough thing for a group of 400 people meeting weekly to here. It's not like there were a lot of places that could hold us. So the uh, principal and I had become really good friends. He was heartbroken about the news, and so he really used his influence to talk to the school board and get us one year before we had to leave. So I had a year to figure out what we were gonna do. I began talking with other churches about renting their, their facility on Sunday afternoon or Sunday night. And the first church that I went to was in our denomination. And I was like, you know, explained our situation and, and told them that we were desperate and that we needed to find a place to meet at least until we could build something or find something else. And we were told no, because they were afraid we would take some of their people. So next, you know, went to a, a, another guy who I didn't even know, but it was a church that was really close to us of a different denomination. And um, I shared our, ish, our situation with him. And I said, we are looking for a place to rent in the afternoon or the evening. And he was absolutely thrilled with the idea. He was like, this would be so cool having our churches, you know, maybe even once in a while hang out together. Well, 
We started talking, our staff members started meeting together to discuss the details, and we really started connecting. And then one, sun, or one, one lunch, they asked us, they said, listen, we are about to go through an extended construction project on our building. It's going to take probably nine weeks, which we cannot meet in the building. We figured out most of what we're going to do, but we have this one week, the first week, that we don't have a place to go. How about we do a service together at the high school? And we were like, seriously? That would be a blast. And so we did. And, and what we had, we called it Unity Sunday. And that Sunday is one of the highlights of my life as a pastor because um, two churches of two denominations worshiping together as one family in Christ was absolutely beautiful. Now, so after that meeting, you know, they, they did their own thing for a while, and we still were talking about what it was going to be like to rent their facility down the road, and then all of a sudden, we got a call on a Wednesday. The construction is not done, but it's supposed to be done by now. We have no place to go this Sunday. Can we do it again? We were like, bring it on, and so we did it again, and it was just as amazing. I remember that after that, my staff and I were, were meeting together, and we just started kind of joking around saying, I wonder what it would be like if two churches of two denominations ever became one church. I mean, they were very similar to us. We uh, had very similar purposes. We saw, you know, saw our role as people who were reaching as well as growing people. We were like, this could be good. We had lunch with them that, the next week, talking about details about renting their facility, and I couldn't believe it when they said, hey, you know what we've been talking about? <laughs> we were thinking, what would it be like? I mean, could it even be possible that two churches of two different denominations could come together? And we were like, that's what we were talking about. So before we made a commitment. Before we talk any more about it, let's just pray. Let's just pray. And so we did for a couple of weeks. And then we got our elders involved in the prayer, and we all just started just praying, Lord, what could happen? And I remember a month or two later, we got all of the elders and all the pastors together to pray and talk together. And we, we met several times, and every conversation we left going, I mean, this could, be, this could be what God wants. We presented the idea to our churches. They loved the idea, and we prayed together. And after a couple more months, we were truly convinced that God was leading two churches of two denominations to become one unified church, not a takeover, but a marriage. And it was beautiful. We said that um, what we would do is, because neither church was like super denominational, we were involved in denominations and stuff, and we gave to our, the different missions organizations, and we said, Let's, we'll keep giving the same amount of money to both missions organizations, we will, we'll, we'll stay tied we'll, you know, to, to both denominations, and it'll, it'll be awesome. And so when, when we told the denominations, we told their denomination, and they were thrilled. I mean, they, seriously, I've never seen. They were celebrating. They put us on the front page of their, uh, of their denominational newsletter, and they were, like, encouraging us, what can we do? And then we told our denomination, too, and they asked us to leave. They did. They asked us to leave. And so, of course, we did. But they, had told, they told us in the process that, that they felt that we had betrayed them. I was told by one of, my, one of my good friends, a denominational leader, that, that he could not imagine this was from God, that this, this is not what God does. And they even tried to make us forfeit the land that we had purchased because we took, it out, we took out a loan through their bank. It broke my heart. Broke my heart. How could they not see God working in all of this? 
how could they not see that God was doing so much? Rejection hurts, especially when it's people who you have loved, you have invested so much of your life with. That's my story, but I bet you have a story of rejection too. I bet you have been rejected by those who are close to you. I bet some people in here, you've been rejected or hurt deeply by church people. Maybe you've, you've rejected the church yourself because of the way people in the church have rejected you. See, it doesn't take long to, feel, to realize that people who follow Jesus are people. And we're messed up and we're broken and we're, we are in the long journey to become like Jesus and it is a long journey. And sometimes you catch us here and we have all this way to go. And we can hurt you. We can. We have insecurity. We have immaturity. And sometimes it's hard getting past the way it's always been done, right? It's so hard to get past that. And we often struggle to understand this thing called grace that like that song said and like the song before said that God truly loves us, every single one of us, and we don't deserve it, but he loves us anyway. That, that there is nothing we can do to earn God's love, nothing. But trying to earn love, it just feels so natural, doesn't it? Ah, it feels so natural. So today and next week, I hope you'll begin to get this picture of what it's supposed to be like, because we're going to be exploring chapter 15 for, for the next two weeks in the book of Acts, and we're going to be looking at how that early church dealt with the number one controversy of the first century church. This, this controversy caused a deep divide. In fact, every one of Paul's letters deals with this controversy. It split so many people, yet the results of that controversy and how they dealt with it is why you and I get to be here today. We are here today because of how they resolved this controversy. But to help us understand why there was conflict, we need to quickly look at the beginning of, the Jew of Jewish history because it all began with this promise to a man named Abraham. And so God told him, would you put up the, the first screen? God told Abraham, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. All people on earth will be blessed through you. So from the very beginning, God's plan was to invite all people, the whole world, into his family through a select group of people, Abraham's descendants. Later, we would call them the Jewish people. And to do this, God set them apart. They were going to be very different in many different ways. So God told Abraham, next verse, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision and it will be the sign of the covenant between you and me. And as uncomfortable it is for me to talk about this, can you imagine what Abraham was thinking when he was told this? Uh, this is at like 2000 BC, okay? Metal was just being discovered. So the reality is, surgery like circumcision for this old guy was going to happen with a sharp rock. Oh, goodness gracious. And you wonder why Abraham was called a man of faith. And from this moment on in Jewish history, male circumcision became a key sign that distinguished Abraham's descendants from every other culture in the world. 
And then when, when, the, when Moses came along and, he, and the law was added, there was another sign, and it was eating kosher. They would eat kosher. Then we jump to the New Testament, so jumping all of Jewish history to Jesus. After Jesus' death and resurrection, and there's a point to all this, I promise, when the Holy Spirit came and filled those followers of Jesus, Peter reminded everybody at Pentecost that the Hebrew Scriptures prophesied that in the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so Peter's like, all people? Everyone? I mean, did that include people then who weren't circumcised? Did that include people who ate pork? See, that is such a great question that nobody was asking at the time. Nobody had this question in mind because everybody who followed Jesus as the Messiah was Jewish. They were all Jewish. Every male was already circumcised. Everybody ate kosher. But within just a, and within just a year or two after the resurrection, that's when persecuted, persecution started. Will you put up the next map? See, all, as the followers of Jesus fled from Jerusalem, they, had, they went into Judea and into Samaria. But these were also Jewish areas. So they were talking about what they had seen. I saw him. Jesus rose from the dead. I, you won't believe it. This thing happened, and, and, and the Holy Spirit indwelled us, and we started, we started teaching and preaching with boldness. And they had, no, they had experienced the fact that Jesus was alive because they had seen him. They had talked with him. They had eaten with him. He hung out with them for 40 days before going into glory. But as they went into Judea and Samaria, the persecution followed him. And it kept going and it kept going. And it took about a decade before it went all the way to Antioch, way up there. And this was the first Gentile city that ever got to hear the message of Jesus. Now, we don't know this. I mean, but Antioch was the third largest city in all of Rome. It was huge. Like 500,000 people lived in the borders of Antioch. And it was a port city. So people from all over the known world came to Antioch to live or to, to, to um, sell goods. And so it was incredibly diverse, culturally, ethically. And, and what was crazy is that the church in Antioch exploded as Gentiles began joining the Jewish Messianic movement. But Gentiles, they, they aren't circumcised or they weren't circumcised and they loved their bacon. Amen? Man. <laughs> they loved their bacon. And this was a problem because the Old Testament scriptures were crystal clear on what it meant to be a follower of God. And circumcision and bacon were definitely a problem. So while the Jewish Christians agreed that the Gentiles, of course, could follow Jesus, of course they could, many were still arguing that the Gentiles still had to become Jewish because that's what the scriptures said. They were just trying to be faithful. And while giving up bacon was tough, it was the surgery that was causing people a problem. You know what I mean? <laughs> All these Gentile men were not, they were, I don't think I like this situation, Paul and Barnabas. What have you been teaching us? And that's the situation that led up to Acts 15, where, we, where we're going to be today. And again, the decision that was, that was made at, uh, in this chapter changed the trajectory of Christianity 
we're here today because of their decision. So let's look at the story. We're going to start in verse 1. All right, it says, certain people came down from Judea, which you got to understand, anything that comes from Jerusalem is down. So yes, it's north, but it doesn't matter because if you're in Jerusalem, everything is down. So they came down to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So why? Because this is what their scriptures said. And so people are coming from Jerusalem to Antioch to tell these Gentiles, no, men, you need to be circumcised. And they were like, do what? And explain that, you know? And they looked at Paul and Barnabas, and because they had been leading the church in Antioch, telling them that Gentile Christians did not need to obey the, the Jewish law. Verse two. And this brought Barnabas, or Paul and Barnabas, into sharp dispute and debate with these men who came from Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about the question. So Paul and Barnabas decide to go back to Jerusalem, because they've been in Antioch for a year now, to discuss with the other apostles to to figure out what is right. Verse 3. So the church sent them on their way. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. And this made all of the believers very glad. See, it's about a 300-mile walk from Antioch all the way to Jerusalem. And as they were going, most of the territory is Jewish territory. And so they're going around and they're sharing what God did among the Gentiles. And everybody is incredibly excited. In verse 4, it says, When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. And so they shared how the Gentile Christians in Antioch received the Holy Spirit in a very similar way to the the Jewish Christians at Pentecost, even though, I mean, the Holy Spirit came upon them even though they were not circumcised and they were enjoying a barbecue pork sandwich. The Holy Spirit still came on them. Verse 5. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses, period. This has to happen. Why? Because this is what our scriptures say. Now, this is what's interesting. Remember, do you remember where Paul came from? What sect of Judaism? Yeah, he was a Pharisee. Paul was a Pharisee himself. He knew about the Pharisees, and he knew about the law. And the Pharisees, if you remember the story, were were some of the ones who plotted to have Jesus killed. Yet now they're in the church. Why? (laughs) Because many of them had seen the risen Jesus too. And when a guy says, I'm going to die and rise again after the third day, and he does it, you go with that guy, right? And many Pharisees did. But even though they saw Jesus as their Messiah, They deeply wanted the church to be a Jewish church, faithful to their understanding of the scriptures. And so verse 6, the apostles and the elders met to consider this question. And after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Now, this is the Peter who walked with Jesus. He's the guy who walked on water with Jesus. He is the guy who was the original leader in Jerusalem. And he reminded them of the vision that God had given him to eat the non-kosher foods and then to go eat, go into the house and eat with a Roman guard, not just a Gentile, but a Roman soldier. Uh, Pastor, Pastor John shared about this story a couple of weeks ago. And so um, he continued. He said, brothers, 
You know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from the lips, hear from my lips, the message of the gospel and believe. So he's like, guys, I'm Jewish. I walked with Jesus. Yet God told me to go to the Gentiles and share the message. He never mentioned circumcision. He never mentioned kosher. He just said, go. In fact, I had a dream where I was supposed to eat the pig. And man, it tasted good. And that, that's not in the scriptures, but that's how I know it had to happen. So even though he was a Jew and God told him to disobey the law of Moses, go into the house of the Gentiles, he continues, verse 8, God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, to the Gentiles, just as he did to us, the Jews. He did not discriminate between us and them, even while they were uncircumcised, for he purified their hearts by what? By faith. See, people were no longer made right, even if they ever were. People were no longer made right by what they do. They're made right by giving their allegiance to Jesus as the Messiah. It is by faith saying, I'm yours. I trust you with my life. That is what made them in the family had nothing to do with surgery anymore, had nothing to do with the way we ate. And I love, love, love what Peter says next. Verse 10. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? I mean, seriously, Peter says, God delivered our people from Egypt. He parted the Red Sea. He, he gave us the law telling us how we had to act. Yet despite all God had done, we continually failed. Our ancestors, they, they, would, they went and worshiped other gods. We were selfish and arrogant. We didn't even keep the law ourselves. And yet now you're demanding that the Gentiles also be a people of the law? Verse 11, he says, no. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. We are saved by grace. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. And neither do they. He said, our people, the Jewish people, we never earned God's favor, but he still gave it to us freely. And now he's extending that favor to the Gentiles. They can't earn it either. It's grace. It has been the plan since the very beginning. And then verse 12, he says, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Paul and Barnabas telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. I mean, you can imagine how stunned they were because, okay, wait a minute. You're telling me they, they're not Jews. They're not trying to become Jews. They're not doing any of the things that Jewish people are supposed to do to be set apart from God, yet they're experiencing the same miracles that we're experiencing. They're experiencing the same filling of the Spirit. They're stunned. They're like, this does not compute what's going on. Because though it might have been promised since the beginning, the Gentiles coming into the family was not expected. It never was expected. But then James, and this is Mary's son. This is Jesus' brother, the, and he is now the current leader of the Jerusalem church. He gets up and he quotes this ancient prophet, Amos, and he says, 
I will return. This is God talking. I will return and rebuild David's fallen dwelling place. Jerusalem. I will restore it that the rest of mankind may see the Lord. Even all of the Gentiles who bear my name. But Gentiles can't bear the name of God, can they? This is, this is the Old Testament scriptures. So even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. See, God's, his plan from the beginning was to bring the whole world into his family through the descendants of Abraham, to bring the uncircumcised Gentile world into the family of God. The law of Moses, it was good, and it had a purpose, but Jesus fulfilled that purpose. Check. The purpose has been fulfilled. The law was preparation for Jesus' arrival, but now he has come. Now circumcision no longer is what sets people apart for God. A bacon, egg, and cheese bagel is no longer the deal breaker. Amen. You can tell. Man, I'm like, I'm just so glad I live on this side of of Jesus. And uh, the old covenant had 600 laws. 600 laws. The new covenant with Jesus Two laws. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And a result of this this meeting in Jerusalem, James declared what is one of has become one of my absolute life verses. Might rival the rest of the Bible as my favorite verse. Because he says in verse 19: It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. This is where the story is going to pick up next week. But what in the world does this have to do with us? First, for those of us who are already followers of Christ, I think this this passage, it can be a warning about how easy it is to, to alter the message of Jesus into a list of rules and behaviors. See, Christian, Christianity was never intended to be a religion of all the things we were against. Amen? It's never been that. The purpose of Jesus' coming was not to make bad people behave well. He came to bring life to the dead. And we were all dead. The message of Jesus is that God loves humanity, all people. That we are his prized creation. And when we rebelled against him, and we all rebel against him, when we rebelled against him, he took on flesh and became one of us, Jesus, our Lord and our God, who died at the hands of those who rebelled against him to receive the judgment that we deserved. Oh, but when he died on that cross, that wasn't the end, was it? Because on that third day, Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered sin and death for all of humanity. And now he invites all people everywhere, Jew, Gentile, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter what gender, everybody is invited. Come, regardless of your past, come. Regardless of how much you've messed up or or how much your parents have messed you up or whatever, he says, come. I will fill you with my spirit. I will help you to mature to become more like me. 
Jesus invites you and me to participate with what he wants to do in the world. And what's amazing is we don't have to earn his favor. We have it. We have it because that's called grace. See, there's no list of rules that you could keep for God to accept you more. There's none. We could never be good enough for him, never. He is too amazing and too perfect. The only response that we can do is to say yes to his invitation. Yes, God, I offer my allegiance to Jesus Christ as Lord and God. And through his spirit that fills you, his spirit around, his spirit in the people around you, God begins this slow process of making you more and more like Jesus. It's a slow process. And sometimes we get so mad because people are at the beginning and we want them to be here, yet we realize we're actually here too because Jesus is way over here. And so we're actually mad that, you know, they're here. It's a long, slow journey to become more and more like Jesus. See, everything we do as a church has a twofold purpose. It's to help people find life in Jesus and to help people grow to become more like him, right? But unfortunately, Christians, we, we often expect people to become more like Jesus before they find life in Jesus. We know that we're, all, we're broken because we're all, we're all so broken. And we know that we were broken when we found Jesus. We know that God was patient with us, but for some reason, we're not very patient with other people, especially when they haven't even chosen to follow Jesus. We don't give them grace, but we need to. See, helping people find Jesus, it's, it's not about changing behavior. It's about changing allegiance. It is. Behavior follows that. See, when we help people discover God's love, when, when we love people right where they are, and when we invite them into our lives to, to, to walk with us in, in Jesus' story, everything changes. So believers in Jesus, I want to ask you a tough question. And I debated about this one. Um, would, would those closest to you say you are more gracious towards those who are different? Or would they say you are more judgmental towards those who think differently or believe differently or act differently? Now, please don't mistake what I'm saying. You might be truly right about some important things. But my question is, have these things become a part of your standard to accept others and to love them? So I want to challenge you to do two things today. First, I want to challenge you to read the whole chapter, Acts 15, because we're going to do the last half next week. I want you to get this in your mind and, and maybe read it a couple of times and allow your soul to marinate in these scriptures because this is a powerful story. But the second thing is I want to, I want to challenge you to ask someone close to you. And you can take a picture of this if you want to remember it. But in your opinion, am I gracious to those who are different than me or do I come across as judgmental? Now, question number two is not for the faint of heart because my hunch is you're going to want to defend yourself really well. <laughs> and I want to encourage you not to do that. So before I close, though, I want to specifically talk to those who have not yet crossed the line of faith and chosen to follow Jesus. See, you are surrounded by a group of people in this room who do love you. And they want nothing more than for you to find life in Jesus like they have. And they have a long way to go to look like him. And maybe you've seen stuff that hasn't looked like that. But just know, you are welcome in this place. We are glad you are here. And we want life 
for you. And we want to walk with you. This room is full of stories of people whose lives have been transformed by Jesus. And I want to invite you this morning to accept God's invitation because he wants to offer you life. He wants you to experience life. And so I ask, would you consider that this morning? Would you consider offering your allegiance to Jesus as Lord and as God? For all of us, I just ask, would you close your eyes for just a minute? Because I want to lead in a prayer. I want to encourage anybody in this room, actually, I want to encourage everybody in this room to silently, you know, repeat these words to the Lord. There's nothing special about words. It's actually a, just a, kind of gives you a tangible way to share what's in your heart. But I want to offer you the opportunity to say yes and to follow Jesus. So Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I am broken. And I need you. Today, I want to follow you. I want life that is available because you died and rose again. Today, this day, I want my life to be different. I give Jesus my allegiance. In your name I pray. Amen. If you've prayed that prayer, if you have meant that in your heart, you have just crossed the line and are beginning a brand new journey of life. But it is a journey that is long and beautiful and can't be done by yourself. If you want to grow, it takes a family, and that's what that's what. Avalon Church is one of the many families around the world of, of people who follow Jesus and want to grow in him. I want to encourage you. On your, on your connection card on the bottom of the bulletin, there is a place you can mark, I chose to follow Jesus, or I, I want to know more about that. I would ask that you mark that, and I would, I'll call you this week or email you or however, whatever information you give. But I also would challenge you to begin a personal relationship with this family. You know, at the end of the service, there's gonna be a bunch of people up here who are willing to pray for you. I will be up here. Pastor Jim will be up here. I would love it if you would come and just share with one of us what happened and what God is doing. We would love to begin that relationship with you. This is an important day because it could be the beginning of a brand new trajectory. Amen? Let's stand and worship together.